Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Not divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. episode 42 of the shine up podcast i'm evan shine i'm absolutely fired up for today's episode we have a terrific featured guest this week and a great media docket coming up on the featured guest spot i am joined by new york city social psychologist dr naomi torres mackin on this episode we talk about the interplay between mental health and social justice issues which are at the forefront of everyone's minds today how do these issues play a role in marriages and relationships in everyday life. We get into the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial and get the doctor's key takeaways from a mental health and psychological perspective. What impact will this trial have going forward? We're going to get the doctor's thoughts on this. We talk about gaslighting and relationships, burnout and stress, and the impact burnout has on relationships and marriage. This episode has it all. Such an incredible spot with Dr. Torres Mackey and an interview you don't want to miss. Producer Dave, I know you were hard at work over the July 4th weekend between the barbecues and the boat rides and whatever else you did over the July 4th weekend, fireworks, but you were hard at work in the Shine On podcast studio making the fireworks happen for this episode, prepping this week's docket. We have some cool audio clips that you'll recognize from film, and I'll talk about how that connects with divorce in some way. I am fired up. God bless America. God bless this podcast, Evan. Dave, let's get right into it. Okay. And now, let's see what's on the docket. Well, Evan, as promised, the crack research staff at Shine On has come up with three clips from film, and each one of them in some way has to do with divorce. First one comes from a movie that I think you've seen, Evan. I've seen it. I enjoy it. It's with John Favreau. It's called Chef. Item one. I think it's kind of cool. I don't. No, I mean, us doing this. Doing what? You know, just hanging out. We hang out all the time. No, like hanging out and doing something. Well, we, we do things. No, not just like watching something or doing something. Like hanging out and talking. And learning things from each other. Well, I figured, you know, with, with you living at Mom's house and me working all the time, that when we hung out, you like to do fun things. I think this is kind of fun. You know, just figuring stuff out. Like, when you lived at home. Yeah, I miss that, too. John Favreau playing a divorced dad and talking to his son. Your thoughts on this movie and the scene, Evan? Dave, it's a great movie. It's a great clip. And it's a great find by you. What a moment between father and son. And who says that movies are not, you know, real life because this was a real moment. And Dave, this clip brings me back to episode 40, where you gave advice for dads spending that first Father's Day following a divorce. And your advice was not to plan something extravagant, to keep it simple, spend quality and meaningful time because that's what matters. And we see exactly what you said on episode 40 take place in this clip from the child's perspective. And look, I hear from so many clients 
about the need to plan, whether it's a lavish trip because the other parent planned the trip or to plan something such as a weekend away because the other parent did it. But think about it from the child's perspective, what your child may need, what may matter most. And Dave, let me ask you, did you have this debate, how to spend the time and feel the need to whether it's to plan something? And did your approach change over time? Well, over time, I think, you know, a parent who's not used to planning like myself will get better at planning activities and things. But it, but as I said, and as you correctly quoted me back to myself, I, I think it's a pretty accurate depiction of a child of divorce who really just wants to be with his dad. Now, in truth, in real life, most kids aren't as articulate as this kid in the movie. So they may not say yeah. it, but don't underestimate the fact that they appreciate your presence. Your presence alone will give them a sense of normalcy because Let's face it, your your life in the past, you weren't taking them to ball games and the circus and the movies like every waking moment in the past. Most of the time, life is hanging out. Life is being there. Life is sitting That's on the right. couch. Life is reading the paper or whatever. And kids dig that. It is a good movie. I'm curious, though, did you have any thoughts on the end of this movie? So, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, <laughs> Chef, fast forward about 90 seconds. But at the end of the movie... They reconcile, and it happens to me a little bit abruptly, and maybe I'm biased because I'm a divorced dad, but I would have rather an ending like Mrs. Doubtfire where they learn to co-parent apart, and it's not this fairy tale ending. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, no, and I tend to agree with you. You know, I've seen that before in my practice, but, I mean, it happens pretty rarely. There would have to be pretty exceptional or unique circumstances for that to happen. But I think if you look at an ending of the movie, you compare this one to, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, the movie that you mentioned, you know, to me, that ending of Mrs. Doubtfire, and I know we've talked about that movie on Mm. the podcast Mm -hmm. several times, just an incredible ending uh, about co-parenting, about learning to parent, learning to grow, learning to, to, to adapt to your children. I prefer that ending, but yeah. still. Chef's a good movie for, for the most part. Maybe <laughs> it also strained credulity a little bit to have an actor who looks like John Favreau being a couple with someone who looks like Sofia Vergara. I'll, I'll, let everyone, <laughs> I'll let everyone make their own opinion on that. Item two comes to us from a movie that probably a little bit of a sleeper. It's called Intolerable Cruelty, starring George Clooney. Item two. Madam, who is the real victim here? Let me suggest to you the following. Your husband, who on a prior occasion had slapped you, beat you. I think that word is not inappropriate. No, I... Let me finish, please. I'm not concerned with who slapped whom first. Your husband, who had beaten you repeatedly... No, he never... Repeatedly, was at the time brandishing your firearm. It was his gun. And will get it back for you, trying in his rage to shoot an acquaintance, a friend of long standing. They never really cared for each other. And if not for your cool-headed intervention... His tantrum might have ended this schmo's life and ruined his own. As for the sexual indiscretion which he imagined took place, wasn't it, in fact, he who was sleeping with the pool man? No? Clooney (laughs) Clooney playing the divorce lawyer, talking to his female client there, and apparently taking some liberties with the facts. Your thoughts, Evan? Dave, you nailed it right on the head. And look, creative lawyering, maybe a slight... (laughs) or more than slight twist of the facts, perhaps, or zealous representation of your client? I think the answer is it depends. It depends on who you ask. 
And look, if you're an attorney, what type of attorney do you want to be? And if you're a client, what is the type of attorney that you want representing you? And look, as attorneys, we're handed the facts. You take the facts, you apply it to the law, you make the best argument that you can on behalf of your client. Sometimes you have the facts on your side, and sometimes you just don't. Sometimes you have the law on your side, and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you just make the best sounding argument you absolutely can. And who would have thought that all roads go back to George Clooney (laughs) giving divorce lawyers a questionable rap? But it's an interesting clip, and I think the answer on how you view this clip really depends, looking at it from the attorney perspective, on the type of attorney you are. And as I mentioned, from the client perspective, who do you want to represent you? What's the type of attorney you're looking for? And we've talked about your philosophy in the past. I know you're not this type of lawyer, Evan, because that what if you the, the move the film is a little bit absurdist and it imagines a scene that probably doesn't actually play out that much in real life. But you have a client who is kind of saying one thing, and the lawyer is trying to talk her into saying something different. Is that? ethical that does he does he maybe bump up against some ethical rules and what he did in that scene yeah i mean i think the answer is potentially yeah. right i think it, potentially but but even more so i mean my thought was how does this play out i mean if you take that approach and if, if you sort of bend the facts and twist the facts or, or create the facts mm. you know to go to your point yeah i think it's definitely an issue but how does it play out in the courtroom i mean you have to remember your client's going to take the stand And the testimony that he or she's going to give is going to be sworn testimony. They're going to be asked to raise their right hand at the sort of the truth and accuracy of what they're saying. And then there's something called cross-examination. And so everything you say on behalf of your client, the facts, the statements, the positions that you take, you're putting your client really under the spotlight and at risk. Because if the matter proceeds and doesn't settle and it goes all the way to a trial, you're putting your client in a position to be cross-examined on those facts. So as attorneys, you need to think long and hard about what you say and how you say it and to make sure that you're never putting your client at risk. Right, and that would be unethical, turning your client into a liar and appropriate because our third clip comes to us from the film Liar Liar starring Jim Carrey. Item three. Are you marrying this guy because you're mad at me? No, I divorced you because I was mad at you. Audrey, wait, I want to talk about this. Well, what do you want to say? Is this guy right for you? I mean, he's just so... Not me! Yes, that's one of his best qualities. Yeah, but he's kind of... I'm sorry. You're wrong. I mean, sometimes, maybe, yes, he is a little bit... Magoo! Yes, but since we've been going out... Oh, my God, I'm not having this conversation with you. Audrey, you can't go. This is not fair. Fair? Oh. Okay, let's define fair, shall we? Last night, a five-year-old boy was crushed because his father lied to him about coming to his birthday party. Fair? Last night? was none of my business. None of my business. Two years ago, it was my business. But see, I don't have to care about that anymore. I don't care. That's the magic of divorce. But it matters to Max. Everything you do matters to Max and everything you don't. All right, now let me tell you something. I'm a bad father. I mean... I'm a bad father. Well, the premise of the movie is that I forget exactly what happens to Jim Carrey. He's not struck by lightning, but he's <laughs> he's these supernatural forces overtake him and he's suddenly incapable of lying, which becomes a bitter irony for a lawyer who, in this case, was a good liar. So, but there's some interesting divorce dynamics there, Evan. So your thoughts. 
Hey, my first thought is, have you ever seen an argument like this actually take place in a parking lot? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'd hang, out, I'd hang out in parking lots more often just for people watching if this is going to Well, happen. I was going to say, no, 100%, but look, yeah. they should take this argument from the parking lot to the mediation table or to the courtroom or the office of a couple's therapist. And look, sometimes there's a blow up. Sometimes there's a fight. Sometimes there's an argument. A moment where you just realize, you know what? You can and you need to do better. And look, whether it's as a spouse or a parent, And sometimes the change happens, but sometimes it may not. And when I hear this clip, I think consistency, stability, being present, showing up, reliability. Look, the foundation pieces for any custody and parenting agreement that is going to stand the test of time. And one of the biggest complaints that I hear from clients post-divorce after an agreement is signed is the other parent didn't show up or the other parent was always late and we were waiting and I had to make up an excuse again. And sure, things are going to come up. And if you have a well-drafted parenting agreement, your agreement should account for certain instances that will absolutely require flexibility. Or if you discuss these things with a marital therapist before you ever step foot into my office, you know what? Maybe you could save your relationship, save your marriage, and you could figure out how to be the best version of a parent that you can possibly be. I think some of the cases of most heartbreaking divorces are ones where one spouse really does check out and and fail to sh- fail to show up to things fail to be there for moments where the kid needs them as heartbreaking as some of these things may be I'll go back to what I said before show up be there when your kid needs you or even when it's just a, a mundane event and of course all the the important meetings you need to go to during divorce your instincts tells you I, I hate this I don't want to go this is a sad thing and I don't want to deal with it but um, dealing with it just a little bit in the outset and some of these things will will certainly pay off in the long run. I You're assume. absolutely right. Well, we're up to the point in the program where Evan gives thoughts on the issues of the day. It is the Shine On Spotlight. The Shine On Spotlight. Dave, today we're going to talk about bringing in the expert. We're going to shine a spotlight on the importance of bringing in outside experts. And look, one of the things I love about what I do and about being a divorce attorney is that practicing divorce law, it touches on everything else. It touches on so many other areas of the law and so many different things, real estate, business, tax, finance, estate planning, intellectual property, valuations, forensic accounting, psychology. I get to wear so many different hats. But here's the thing. All these areas, sure, through experience and practice and the work that I do, I'm well-versed in all these areas. But they're not my specialty. They're not my area of expertise. Yet so many divorces, especially with complex financial and complex custody issues, touch on one, two, or all of these other areas. So find a professional. Find someone who specializes in these other areas and bring them on board. Bring them on the team. It's better for your client. It's better for you as the divorce attorney. Stay in your lane. Focus on what you specialize in and work together with a team, if possible, for your client. It's better for everyone involved. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine Up Podcast is Dr. Naomi Torres-Mackin. She's the head of research at the Mental Health Coalition and a clinical psychologist at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. She's also an adjunct professor of psychology at Columbia University, co-founder of the social justice-focused consultancy, Mason Consulting, and a contributing writer to Psychology Today. Naomi, welcome to the Shine Up Podcast. It's great to have you with us. 
Hi, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. I have been looking forward to this conversation, and there's so much I want to get into on today's episode. And I want to start by taking a look at mental health in 2022. And I feel like we can't talk about mental health right now without talking about the impact of the pandemic. And whether it's anxiety, depression, relationship struggles, I feel like we both have seen it all in our respective practices, my side from the divorce attorney's perspective. So let me ask you, what have you seen from the psychologist and the therapeutic perspective? Absolutely. So the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, it it can't be overstated how much of an impact it's had on mental health. It's just enormous. So the pandemic has impacted us on a daily basis, just in terms of how we're feeling overall. There's this general sense of exhaustion, malaise, anxiety, kind of fear of, of where we are and where we're going. And then also in terms of clinical mental health, I've seen a rise in anxiety-based disorders, depression, trauma. Trauma is major right now. There's been so much loss and so much grief. Trauma related to that is enormous. So unfortunately, I would say we're in a pretty dark place right now in terms of mental health on a global scale. So it's it's major and it, it really is a point in time where we need to be thinking about mental health more kind of specifically and uh, thoughtfully around the impact this is all having on mental health and what we do moving forward to make sure that we don't go further into the mental health crisis than we already are. Now, you mentioned things to do going forward. So what is your advice and tips for people to manage, whether it's stress, anxiety, you mentioned trauma. What is advice that people could implement on a day-to-day basis in their own lives to help them with whatever they're going through at this point in time? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So it's a great question. It's also a difficult question to answer because there's so there's just a myriad of, of lived experiences, right? And so it's difficult to speak to what could help everybody, but I can speak to what I've seen be very helpful in my clinical practice and research on a very broad scale. And so some things that we know based on science that are very important are social connections. So as much as is possible, reach out to the people that you feel comfortable with and connect, connect, connect. It's getting both increasingly easier with the digital world to connect, but also more difficult to connect on a meaningful and deep level. And so the more that you can make the effort to, again, connect with people on a meaningful level, on a deep level, you will feel more connected to other people and to yourselves. And we know that this is one of the most important buffers, basically, against mental health concerns. So that's major. And then physical health as well. So the mind-body connection is so important. They're they're almost inseparable, really. We don't talk about that enough, but taking care of your physical health is crucial for managing your mental well-being as well. And so whatever that looks like for you, that it doesn't have to be exercise. So taking care of your physical health could also be how you eat. It could be doing things like taking baths, getting massages, anything that physically feels really good for you is very important. 
So those are crucial. And then also being mindful of where you are mentally and the fact that everybody has mental health. And if you can really tune into how am I doing today? How am I doing this week? And acknowledging where you are because you can't improve something if you don't acknowledge it. So acknowledge where you are and then take specific steps to support yourself. So self-care is the more buzzy kind of pop uh, term that we hear a lot. And But it's not just pop psychology. It's, it is true like clinical psychology, the importance of self-care, being mindful of where you are now and what you need in order to feel better. And self-care, it can look like anything that feels good for you and is healthy for you as well. Making sure that you're scheduling self-care, practicing it, and engaging in a way that it really fills you up rather than depletes you is crucial. I know me. I love that. And people's lives and worlds, they've been rocked and turned upside down over the past two years. And many psychologists and therapists, they're booked up. Adults and children are on waiting lists that are often months long. And these are just for initial evaluations and initial consults. Accessibility is just one of the many challenges that so many people face when it comes to dealing with and confronting mental health issues and concerns what other challenges in 2022 exist when it comes to mental health? So access, you're right. That's a huge one, huge, huge one, access. That's one that I really struggle with a lot. So I, as a clinical psychologist, I think a lot about the individual and what happens for one person, but I also have been very much trained to think about the larger system. And so, as you said, access is huge. I could spend hours talking about the problems there. (laughs) Another systems level issue is stigma. And so this is something we talk a lot about at the Mental Health Coalition. It's baked into the work that we do. I also talk a ton about it in my consulting work through Nascent Consulting. But the stigma of mental health is so strong and creates such a barrier to accessing support. So even though we have the problem with access, it's almost as if there is there are more resources out there and there's more available than we think there is because of the stigma. There's a lot of blocks around even kind of looking around and and seeing what resources are out there. And so anyway, so the stigma itself though, it really it works to create a lot of silence around mental health. So people are afraid to acknowledge when they're struggling. People are even afraid to offer support to other people when they see they might be struggling because they don't want to offend the other person because of this mental health stigma. And it's something that runs very deep in a lot of culture, certainly in American culture. And so I would say that's a huge factor. There is some kind of light ahead. We can see the stigma is easing around some areas, especially depression, but overall stigma, it's, it's a tough one. And you mentioned stigma. And I want to ask you because there have been many celebrities, whether it's athletes or entertainers, many people who in 2021, Simone Biles, other people of, of a certain status have been outspoken about mental health. When people hear high profile individuals speak candidly and openly about mental health and whatever struggles that they might be going through, does it make that conversation easier in terms of moving past the stigma 
Yes. Yes. I really appreciate those conversations. They are so important for moving the needle on stigma. So if you think about it, celebrities, they are people that are so well known, mostly because they're looked up to. People want to emulate them. They're respected and on and on. And so if you can have a model of someone who is is respected, you look up to, and they are being vulnerable and talking about mental health, it can really open the door for you to feel like you can do that as well. So that's actually something. So at the Mental Health Coalition, we created this one-to-one series where we have invited people to join our Instagram lives. And these are typically high-profile people, really well-known people who have selected somebody in their life who's very important to them. And they take the time to be open, to discuss how they've been doing on a mental health basis and how they lean on that person for support. And we've seen a tremendous reaction, positive reaction to this because it it can be very inspiring to see somebody, again, that you look up to be able to be vulnerable. And that is key, finding the strength in vulnerability in talking about these things. So yes, I think when celebrities, when public figures are able to discuss these things, it really does open doors for other people as well. Naomi, you mentioned your work at the Mental Health Coalition. Tell us about this and the mission and everything that you're involved in at the organization. Absolutely. So the Mental Health Coalition is a nonprofit that was founded by American fashion designer Kenneth Cole to work to destigmatize mental health and bring much needed resources to needs. And so the coalition is a partnership of the most well-known and well-respected mental health organizations coming together to work towards these goals. So we do a lot of work around um, creating dialogue and spaces to discuss mental health. Again, we know that if you can't see it, you can't be it. So this idea of, again, creating a model of what vulnerable, important conversations around mental health look like, we do that. We have an enormous resource library that anybody can go to with any concern that they have within mental health, type it in. And we've pooled our resources from our, at this point, I think 30-something partners. And so it's like a one-stop shop for finding resources for mental health, which is very important because that can be a bit overwhelming. So we do a lot of work in these areas, partnerships across the board, different industries, different individuals that are in a lot of different industries trying to spread the word and destigmatize. Naomi, you wear many hats. We talked about your work at the Mental Health Coalition. You're also a clinical psychologist. You write for Psychology Today. Take us through your journey and how you got into the field of psychology. Sure. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's a tough one because if I really were to go deep, that would be way back to childhood, but I won't bring you there. (laughs) I would have to have a part two to get into all this. Yeah, no. So I I came to psychology through a career change. I was in management consulting 
and was finding that I really loved the people aspect. There was a lot that just wasn't feeling fulfilling for me. And so I sat, I thought long and hard. I had a very important conversation with a mentor of mine about what really fills me up and what I truly feel connected to. And so I applied to grow up school kind of on a whim, was accepted, went to a mental health counseling program at Columbia University and really loved the clinical work component and then also dipped my toe into the research side of things and found that these things complement each other so well and that I couldn't really you know see my career going forward without being able to do both and so that's when I was lucky enough to get into the doctoral program at Columbia University, the counseling psychology program, where I was able to fine-tune my skills in clinical work and add this research component. And so I was on Dr. Marie Maville's research team, and she does a lot of work around gender roles and race, sexual orientation, basically intersectionality, if we were to wrap it up in, into one word, intersectionality and how we develop these identities and how that impacts us and how we see the world. So yeah, so I was a career changer from the corporate world into psychology. And I have to say, I have not looked back at this point. (laughs) What do you love most about your work? What do I love most? I, the human connection, I guess, just the human connection and the privilege really of seeing people's inner worlds and their, just their most deepest thoughts and vulnerabilities, really, really having the privilege of seeing their lived experiences and being a support within that. I I find so fulfilling and so important. You mentioned intersectionality and as part of your practice and work, you focus on social justice psychology. So let's talk about that. First, tell us about this part of your work and what does that actually, what does that actually mean? Absolutely. So social justice psychology, this is something that I infuse in all of the work that I do, whether or not it's consulting or teaching, clinical work, research, advocacy. I see social justice psychology essentially as taking into account social group location and the ideas of power and privilege and oppression and how all of these things impact us, not only who we are and how we see the world, but how the world sees us and therefore what that does to us in terms of our own well-being. And so whether or not that means the way you grew up in terms of social class or family structure or your racial identity, your ability status, your nationality, on and on, these things have such a real impact on us. And unfortunately, historically, the field of psychology hasn't taken these things into account as much. And so that's something I'm extremely passionate about is trying to bring that to the forefront of the work that I'm doing and also advocating for that being a stronger force within psychology itself. And right now, there's so many political, racial, medical, cultural issues that are at the forefront of people's minds. And things are dominating the news cycle, topics and conversations. They're causing a tremendous divide whether it's between friends and family, spouses, coworkers, so many people are facing these issues and trying to deal with it. So what are you seeing and how do you tackle these topics and important discussions with clients? Really difficult. So 
with clients, I, I see myself as providing an invitation. Essentially, I'd say, this is how I work. This is how I've been trained. This is something that I try to infuse in all of the work that I do. And so the door is open if you would like to talk about these these topics, whether or not it's the impact of racism, the impact of sexism, et cetera. And I also do acknowledge that I am a white woman. And so that has a certain power to it. And then within the clinical space, I very much own that and that I know that that could be complicated and that it, there's also an invitation there in terms of discussing that and the impact of that. And I would say too, that these conversations can be extremely difficult, but also extremely important. And as you mentioned, they really can create tension. And I'm now speaking kind of outside of the clinical sure. therapy space, but the tensions that they can create can cause so much fear in terms of not wanting to disrupt a relationship because of these conversations. And it's very difficult to give advice on how to have these conversations, but I would say in just one word is empathy. So basically right now, if you think about it on a broader scale, it's a very, there's a lot of fear that we're all living with right now on a broad scale. And then within these conversations, there's fear too. You don't want to lose or hurt those relationships. But if you can try to keep empathy at the core of these conversations, it can make a big difference. And then I, mean, I want to ask about some issues that we're seeing in the news. And I want to start with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Their lives have been on display for the entire world to see. Every single detail, every picture, text message, accusation, claim, the most intimate details of their lives were shared with the world in open court in defamation proceedings. And it looked, this played out with cameras in the courtroom. We heard from Johnny Depp. We heard from Amber Heard. And we also heard from endless witnesses, including psychologists. And recently, the jury issued a verdict, ultimately finding in Johnny Depp's favor. And regardless of who people identified with, people have had incredibly strong beliefs on what they saw unfold, which star they aligned themselves with. And people have had very strong reactions to the decision from the domestic violence perspective and also from the accused perspective. And people have said a decision like this may prevent victims from speaking up, while others have said justice prevailed. What is your take based on what you saw unfold and what you expect the impact to be going forward? Yeah, so this is a big one. I, a big takeaway for me in seeing what I saw unfold is that there was a very clear example within this of mental health being weaponized. And that is something that I think was very unfortunate and a danger, essentially, for moving forward in terms of just creating more fear of receiving treatment, of receiving a diagnosis, et cetera, because we had here an example of someone's mental health history and also someone's perceived mental health status, which wasn't actually, in what I could tell, wasn't actually based in sound clinical assessment weaponized against her. And this has happened 
many, many times in the courtroom. Unfortunately, this this happens, in my understanding, pretty regularly. But here we saw it unfold, as you said, in such a public manner that just the damage that that caused is very unfortunate. If you're somebody watching this who struggles with mental health concerns, this is an example of, it could be, I should say, this could be an example of watching this and feeling like, oh, I should keep my mouth shut about what I'm struggling with because here you see it being weaponized against somebody. And I, I just think that that it's too bad. It's really too bad. And it, it also is kind of a system of this larger stigma around mental health that we know very much exists. I think that's kind of my my main thought. I, there's a lot of thoughts and, and feelings on a professional level, on a personal level sure. around the trial. But I think that's kind of my main takeaway from the psychology standpoint. Over the past few years, and very recently, at an alarming rate, we have seen unspeakable tragedy after unspeakable tragedy, lives lost, adults, children. Just recently, there were shootings at at a hospital and the tragic school shooting in Texas. Before that was a shooting in Western New York and Buffalo at a supermarket in New York City, where we both are. There's been shootings on subways, on the streets, and crime is at a very high level. With all of these tragedies and the questions and discussions and conversations that follow, mental health is always part of the conversation. And so what are your thoughts on the part that mental health plays in these unspeakable tragedies? And is there a solution or a mechanism by which we can improve mental health, whether it's accessibility, so tragedies like we've seen? can be avoided? So I can give you the facts from research that that we know and do my best to talk about solutions, but that is a tall order. But yes, yeah, so in terms of the facts, mental health and violence. So these things, mass shootings, they don't actually happen because of mental health conditions. There's no condition in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that is tied to mass shootings. There's no diagnosis for violence, essentially, for somebody who will be violent. And so there's a big conflation, generally, in the media, in in our culture, a conflation of violence and mental illness that doesn't exist. The common factor there is the unknown, right? And, and as humans, we're primed to be fearful of, of something we don't understand. And so we don't understand senseless violence. And unfortunately, most of us don't understand mental illness. And so we can conflate these things where they don't deserve to be conflated. So what we do know is that if we're looking at violent acts within the U.S., 97% of them are committed by somebody that does not have a mental health condition. We also know that people that have mental health conditions are far, far, far more likely to be victims of violence, the perpetrators of violence. And the only factor that we have in understanding or predicting really who will be violent is past behavior. So who has been violent in the past, not mental illness. The the only area where mental health and violence 
truly do overlap, statistically speaking, is suicide. And so those with mental health conditions, where violence does tend to happen is towards oneself, unfortunately, which in itself is tragic and something that we don't talk enough about in terms of the guns and mental health and violence debates. So that's what I would have to say about that. And then in terms of looking ahead, so this is something that is very fraught with with tensions and, and debate, as, as we all know. But, I mean, it's it's so hard because it is very political, but guns and gun control is the number one thing. If you look at other countries that have the exact same rates of mental illness and you compare them and you compare the U.S., the difference is the amount of guns that are out there. So I think that's kind of all I can say in terms of looking ahead and, and solutions. I would say absolutely, though, compassion and greater understanding of what mental illness even is and what it looks like is very important to having a a conversation moving forward that's based in fact and reality instead of based in fear of the unknown. Such a great point. And Naomi, I want to switch gears entirely. And I want to talk about a brilliant article in the Washington Post where you reported that focused on gaslighting. It's a term I hear as a divorce attorney all the time. People throw it around. And so I want to get into this topic. And to start, what is gaslighting? What does it actually mean? So gaslighting is when somebody distorts your reality for their own benefit. Gaslighting is not invalidation or dismissing someone's emotions. So gaslighting has become a term that is very popular. And I can appreciate that because it is something that I wish more people knew about. But I wish more people knew about the true meaning of gaslighting. So if you think about it, it typically occurs in a relationship, usually an intimate partnership where one person holds more power than the other and they desire even more control and power in the relationship. And so one mechanism of that is gaslighting, which is essentially convincing the other person that they should doubt their own reality. And so that might look like every time there's an argument, twisting it and turning it on the other person. Or it might look like anything as simple as, did you do X today? And the other person just completely lies. And that lying and distorting of the truth over and over can really make you question yourself and your own reality, which can have very severe impacts in terms of mental health and well-being. So that behavior that you describe, does that build up over years in small ways and then it becomes almost magnified? down the road and what could be done for someone to spot these red flags early in a relationship? Yes, absolutely. And that's a really good point in addition to understanding gaslighting is it does usually happen over time, slowly in little small doses that builds and builds until you're kind of left questioning your own sense of facts and reality. And so 
basically it's that the I forget exactly what it is, but the the metaphor, the thing about the frog and boiling water, right? We put a frog in water, you slowly turn the water up and up and up, and eventually you'll you'll boil it, it'll be cooked and it won't have even noticed. So that's what tends to happen with gaslighting. And that's part of what makes it so tricky to spot and understand. But if you are in a relationship and you notice that you have a sense of how something is, of what reality is. And then all of a sudden you get, it's probably had this feeling of just second guessing yourself, right? Like this happens in mundane things all the time. Like, ah, did I remember to feed the dog today? Or did I turn off my curling iron? Kind of second guess yourself, right? That's a normal psychological experience. We all have at some point. But if you're within a relationship and you start having that feeling, it starts dominating, kind of permeating the relationship and permeating your mental state, that is a very clear sign that gaslighting is going on because that's something that you don't typically psychologically experience on a broader scale unless somebody is actively trying to make that happen. But for somebody who wants to stay out of my office and actually work on their marriage, work on their relationship, and gaslighting is an issue, how does someone communicate with the gaslighter? And if someone is interested in doing couples therapy, and you mentioned you work with couples, can couples therapy work when gaslighting is an issue and present in a relationship and marriage? Yes. So... It is. So communication is really important in addressing gaslighting in a relationship. And the reason I say communication is important is because it's all about how the conversation is structured and the way it's addressed. So if you can get to the underlying issue beneath gaslighting, beneath why somebody is gaslighting, then you have some hope of changing it, of adjusting it. So it depends on how open the person, the gaslighter, it depends on how open the gaslighter is to reflecting on themselves and their own actions. And so if you can have a conversation where you can help them see what is it that they truly deeply want, basically why are they gaslighting? Because people don't gaslight just for the fun of gaslighting. They either want power or control or they feel like they're losing somebody. And so they want to bring them, suck them back into the relationship and keep them there. And so, again, if you're able to have the conversation and communicate around what's the deeper need here? Are you afraid of losing control? Are you feeling like you're losing your grip on power in this relationship? And then how can you find a more adaptive, a healthier way? of getting those needs met in the relationship, then I would say you there is absolutely hope that these things can shift and that the gaslighting can stop. However, if you have two people where the person who's gaslighting is very defended against that and isn't willing to look at the underlying mechanism, that's where I think it, I never want to say it's hopeless. I wouldn't say that, but I would say it's going to be tremendously difficult to get buy-in from the person who is gaslighting to make any sort of change in progress forward. You went exactly where I was going to follow up and ask, because I would imagine that that conversation has to be a difficult one. Getting someone who's engaging in this type of behavior, gaslighting, getting that person to open up and to look deep and to find another way to sort of 
deal with it has to be a very, you know, use the word buy-in, you know, a commitment to a voluntary process such as couples therapy, marital counseling. I would imagine that's a very hard conversation and process to work through. It is. Absolutely. It is. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, just this idea of vulnerability and the strength in vulnerability, because essentially, if we think of a gaslighter as somebody who is feeling powerless in the relationship and so they want more power, it takes vulnerability to say, hey, I'm afraid of losing you or hey, I think I might be losing you. And this is what I need to feel more secure in the relationship. Again, that takes a lot of vulnerability. It can be very difficult. And then circling back to this idea of stigma, if we can destigmatize vulnerability, basically, which is a huge part of the mental health stigma, it makes these types of conversations easier and more palatable. And therefore, it makes change and progress easier. Naomi, I want to get some final thoughts from you on a few topics. What's one thing as a researcher and psychologist? that you're going to be interested in following, studying, researching when it comes to mental health in 2022 and the years going forward? I would say psychological safety. Psychological safety comes to mind because if we zoom out and we take a broad lens and we think about what is impacting the most people in terms of mental health, we can look at things like the COVID-19 pandemic, how terrifying that is. We can look at the war in Europe, how terrifying that is. We can look at mass shootings, acts of violence, how terrifying that is. Racist murders and incidences, how terrifying that is. The list goes on and on. So there's so much fear on an unprecedented global scale right now. And this idea of psychological safety is so important. It's something that exists in the literature already. But looking ahead, we're already in such a different space than we were just two years ago in understanding how we feel safe and adapting our mechanisms in order to feel safe in our current world and our future world. That is key in terms of research and making sure we're connecting this idea of psychological safety to our adapting world so that we can stay ahead of basically mental well-being and being able to foster it because that all ties back to feeling safe. Essentially, it's really hard to feel well if you don't feel safe. That's such a fantastic point. Mental health in relationships. How open should someone be with their spouse or partner? when it comes to their own mental health? Mm. I would say as open as is possible. So that depends on you and it depends on your partner. So if you are with a partner who, and I, I hope everybody is and everybody should be with the partner that is supportive around mental health. So if, if you have a partner that is understanding and supportive around well-being and mental health, then as open as you can be, and I know that's a very personal thing because it can be extremely difficult to talk about your own mental health, but as open as you can be, the better. Because essentially, the more you talk about your own well-being, your own mental well-being with your partner, the better chance you have of receiving support. 
as long as that person, again, is supportive and understanding of of mental health. And so that's where I like to, when I work with couples, I do a lot of work around asking each other questions around mental health, really to get a sense of how much does the other person understand? What do they know? What are their blind spots? And so you also have a sense of that. And so you get a good read on what are you able to go to them with and what are you not? And if there are spaces where you feel like, ooh, I, my depressive symptoms, I just really can't bring that to my wife because they know that she's, she'll be disappointed or she'll feel like this is a big emotional burden on her, et cetera, whatever the issue is, why you can't go to her with that. That's when I'd say this is a great time for couples counseling because a couples counselor can help you address these spots where it feels like you can't find support because at the end of the day, these very important core relationships that we have in our lives, we do want them to be spaces where you can go to your partner with anything and everything. You mentioned burnout stress. How concerned should we be as a society with burnout and stress and how best can people manage it? So burnout and stress, they're major. There's absolutely a culture in the United States of, I like to think of it as the achievement treadmill, this idea, as soon as you finish one achievement, okay, what's next? What's next? How can I do better? How can I move on to something even greater and bigger and harder? And there's so many things that fuel that, but this is where we are. This is the culture. And it really, it, it is a pretty surefire way to lead to burnout. And on top of that, we have organizations that are stretched very thin and needing more and more from their employees. And so there is also a top-down stress point on the individuals too that leads to more burnout. And I I think it's major. If we're thinking about mental health on a broad scale, stress and burnout is one of the top five concerns I have. And it's something that it really can affect anybody. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter the type of job you have. Burnout really is everywhere. We see it across the board. And so what I say to deal with burnout, one, is to know the signs of burnout. Two, look for the signs of burnout. <laughs> Three, when you see signs of burnout, do something as soon as possible. Do something that feels good for you, that allows you some breathing room to take care of yourself. Going back to point one, though, it is really important to know what burnout even looks like and feels like. And so I think of it as a depletion. It's a depletion of your psychological reserves. It's a depletion of your kind of cognitive capacity. It's that sense of being really worn out. And that can look like feeling distracted, feeling unmotivated, less interested in the things that you used to be interested in, disconnected from people in your life, disconnected from your own work. It can even look like numbing. It it can feel like you are just numb. And so burnout, it can look different for different people. Those are some of the more common things that I tend to see. And so, like I said, being proactive is so important. So as soon as you start feeling any of these things, act. Action is the best antidote to burnout. And so if you can even create, this is more specific, but if you can create 
a list, an actual list of activities and things that you know feel really good for yourselves. As soon as you start to see the sign of burnout, it's like you consult that list. And it sounds kind of elementary and maybe even a little bit silly that you have this like self-care list, but it's so important because when you're not feeling well, it can be really difficult to even think clearly about the best way to take care of yourself. So if you've planned ahead for this and you have this list, it can be extremely helpful. And the other thing I would say, going back to what I, I mentioned before around the importance of connection, reaching out for support when you are starting to feel that depletion on your psychological reserves. So whether or not that's a colleague, a friend, a family member, a professional, anybody that you feel comfortable with and you feel like you can be vulnerable with, reach out to support, reach out for support. And see also if you can reach out to schedule something that takes you away from the activity that's burning you out, right? So burnout, we tend to think of in the workplace and that's number one. Burnout can also exist in other areas too. Maybe it's your family life. Maybe it's the child care responsibilities that you have can be very, very prime areas for burnout. And so if you're reaching out to support for support from somebody, see if you can do something with somebody that, again, takes you outside of that role that's burning you out at the moment. Virtual therapy versus in-person therapy. Do you love it? Do you don't love it? Or is it somewhere in between? <laughs> somewhere in between. For me, it's somewhere in between. I, my feelings on this are evolving. I had never conducted therapy virtually before March of 2020. Lenox Hill Hospital, the initial COVID-19 surge hit. We transitioned everything to telehealth. That's where we still are primarily. I would say it's wonderful in terms of access. I see so many more patients staying engaged in treatment longer than they might have otherwise because there's not the commute. There's not all the things that used to get in the way of coming into the office for treatment. So access-wise, I think it's really great. I think also just in terms of the way people's lives are structured, it makes a lot of sense, especially I tend to work with people that have a lot of drains on them. And so I work with a lot of new moms too in the perinatal mental health program. And so if I can see a new mom while she's at home, while her children are napping and she's doing 50 other things at once, that's wonderful because otherwise I probably wouldn't have been able to work with her. So in that way, I think it's great. I will, I will absolutely say though, there's a lot that's mixed over Zoom. Right. Even just energetically speaking, if you can't read someone's energy through a screen, you're missing senses, touch and smell. There's certain senses that are missed through the screen. And therapy is really done best when you are fully there, when you have your full self present. And so when there's a screen in the way, it does make it a bit more difficult for sure. And Naomi, last question. Fast forward five years from now, what do you hope the conversation around mental health looks like then versus right now? I hope in five years, we are looking back and we are 
glad for the progress that we've made in terms of stigma and mental health. And that we're looking back on 2020 through 2020, whatever, and saying, wow, we were in a mental health crisis and we got through it. And now we know how to work with mental health even better looking ahead. I think, again, we're at this point in time, it's an unprecedented experience that we're having basically globally. And if we're able to take this mental health crisis and meet it where it is and address it in a way where we're then prepared, even more prepared looking ahead to manage future mental health crises, then I'll say, okay, we're in a good space. So I just hope that we can take where we are now and and kind of mine something useful out of it for the future. I love it. Dr. Torres Mackey, this was an absolute pleasure. Your work at the Mental Health Coalition, your research, you have so many incredible articles on psychology today. Tell everybody where they can read uh, your articles and find out about everything that you're involved in. Absolutely. So check out the mentalhealthcoalition.org. Our resource library there is absolutely wonderful. Check out um, my Psychology Today column called Underdog Psychology. You can also follow, follow me on Twitter at ntorismackey on Twitter. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Producer Dave, that was a show, episode 42. It's in the books. Mm. New York City, social psychologist, Dr. Naomi Torres Mackey. She was tremendous, touched on so much with an incredible perspective and tremendous thoughts. What a fantastic spot with her. My guy, producer Dave of the Boston Podcast Network. What an interview. What a docket. That was fun. You promised fireworks and you delivered. Happy 4th. Dave, you delivered. <laughs> Thank you to all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast at all major podcast platforms and check out the Shine On Podcast YouTube channel. Subscribe, follow the podcast, send in your comments and questions to Evan at shineofdivorce.com and follow me on social media. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Bye.